Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Today I want to I want to preach a message why I believe. Okay? And and it's really personal to me. I know there's many different reasons why people are Christians, why people believe in Jesus. And there's I mean there's many 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 awesome reasons to be a Christian. But I want to talk today about why I believe from the reason side, not the feeling side. There's that side too. There's the whole side of how amazing Jesus is and what he does to our, in our lives. But I want to talk more from the apologetic side today. And uh, I want to talk about actually for me why believing in Jesus is so simple. Uh, several months ago, I was, uh, I was in, in uh, our boy's bedroom at home. And I was, we were reading some books together. My youngest daughter, Eden, was in the room with us as well. And she's nine years old. And while I'm reading these books, I forget what triggered the question, but suddenly I can still remember where she was. She was sitting on, the, on uh, Boaz's bunk bed in the room. And she suddenly asked me this question out of the blue. She says, Daddy, how do we know that what we believe is true? When so many people in the world don't believe it. And uh, has any of you ever gotten asked a question like that from one of your kids when you least expect it, right? Like, they don't give you a heads up, hey, a week from now I'm going to ask you a really big question, okay? It's just, you're reading whatever book to your six-year-old, and the next thing you know, your nine-year-old is shaking your own faith, right? And so, uh, this message is a little bit, really, my response to her. Um, but I, one of the things I realized in the weeks afterwards, I, I told some of our friends, different people we know, I told them about this question she had asked. And every time I told them about this question, people all had pretty much the same reaction. They basically pulled out a notebook and said, okay, so what did you answer? <laughs> so I could see there's this sort of general fear, okay, I don't know how I would answer that question if my nine-year-old or ten-year-old or whatever asked it to me. And, uh, and I think a lot of us as Christians, we are afraid of questions because we feel inadequate, we feel insecure, we feel like we don't know enough to answer those sorts of questions. And we think, you know, answering that question is hard because there's so many hard questions out there. And let's just face up to the fact that there are a lot of difficult questions out there. I mean, many of us, including myself for many of the questions, feel inadequate to questions like, you know, when people start asking and they say, you know, well, how can you believe in God when there's this, that, or another story in the Old Testament? And how could God allow that, all the violence? And how, you know, there's this, you know, contradiction in, in the book of Exodus and 1 Samuel, and they bring up these things and we go, I don't know how to answer those questions. Or there's other people and they ask the question, you know, how can you believe in a God who's hateful towards homosexuality and stuff like that? There's this, these perceptions out there and many of us feel inadequate when confronted with some of the stuff, particularly in the Old Testament, we don't know, I don't know how to answer that. And we don't know how to answer questions like, well, how did the Bible even get put together? How do you know that the Bible is the right? And there's all these things and we don't know statistics about the number of manuscripts and dates and church councils and the history of how things are put together and certain passages. And so we feel like, I just really don't want to get asked those questions. But if you want to know for me, and that's what I'm speaking about today, for me, and again, you guys, many of you will have your own reasons. I'm not saying these two reasons have to be your main reasons. But if you want to know for me, believing in Jesus is actually quite simple. 
And my faith doesn't, and in fact, there's a couple other messages I'd like to preach at some point. My faith does not at all waver. Someone can point to me all kinds of things in the Old Testament that I can't explain, and it actually doesn't shake my faith one little bit. People can point to me all kinds of scientific discoveries about this or that. I can read arguments about evolution and things like that. It doesn't actually affect my faith even this much. Because my faith does not hinge on what I consider to be secondary questions. And so for me, it's actually quite simple. It really comes down to two things. And I just want to talk to you about two things today. When your eight-year-old or nine-year-old or ten-year-old asks you this question, or when someone comes to you with questions that you have no idea how to answer, I want to talk to you about the two biggest things And out of those two things, it's not that those other questions are bad. I think they're all really good. And I think we should try to help people find the answers they need for all the questions they have. But for me, it never shakes my faith because I always go back to these two things. And from there, I always believe, well, I can figure out the rest as best that I need to know. And so I want to talk to you about the two things. And when I talked to my daughter Eden several months ago, I want to talk to you about the two things I talked to her about. But before we do that, can we just acknowledge something? Can we just acknowledge that, you know, if we divide the, the, uh, the world into two groups, Christian and non-Christian, can we acknowledge something? Because I feel like as Christians, in order to make ourselves feel good, we're so afraid, some of us, that we might be wrong, that we actually make up narratives about people who aren't Christians in order to make ourselves feel good about what we believe. And so one of the narratives, you will particularly see this sometimes in apologetics, where people who are trying to prove creation actually come up with a narrative in order to make themselves feel good that actually it's obvious that God created the earth. So you make up a narrative that all the scientists in the world are actually purposely making things up or believing wrong things in order that they don't have to believe in God. And we believe things like this about non-Christians all the time. We make up a narrative. They, they just don't want to believe in God. That's why they believe these things. And that's why I can feel confident when I believe. Can we just acknowledge something? There are lots of really smart people who don't believe in Jesus. Lots of really smart people who are a lot smarter than me and a lot smarter than probably anybody here in this room. There are some really smart people that don't believe in Jesus. And did you know that not all scientists, in fact, The vast majority of scientists do not believe what they believe about science because they just don't want to believe. They actually believe what they believe because they have good reasons. Now, we might not agree with all of their reasons, but they have really convincing reasons why they believe what they believe. So can we just acknowledge that there are lots of non-Christians out there that are very smart? Can we also agree that there are lots of non-Christians out there that are very nice? Because that's another narrative we sometimes spin to help ourselves feel better about what we believe, is that, well, Christians are nicer and non-Christians are not as nice. But the fact of the matter is, there are actually some Christians who are not nice. Has any of you ever realized that? I know it doesn't happen in this church. It's just in other churches. (laughs) I'm just kidding if you're from another church. But, uh... There's, there's people who are Christians who are not nice, and there are non-Christians who are not nice. There are very smart people who believe in Jesus, 
And there are very smart people who don't believe in Jesus. And they don't just not believe in Jesus because they're stupid or they're ignorant or because they're just convinced, blinded, that they just make up new science and all kinds of stuff. It's actually not reality. And if you actually talk to some of these people, you will find that out. Now, for some of us, that's even shaking. The fact that I even talk about this is like this unspoken thing for some of us because we're so afraid that we might be wrong. When I start to talk about the fact that there are very smart people out there that don't believe in Jesus, it makes us think, well, how... Maybe, maybe we're wrong then. How could smart people not believe in Jesus? So there's a couple of different reactions that people have to this. I just want to put them up there. One of the reactions is this sort of paralyzed fear of how can we know anything? Did you know you can, you can take, there, there, and it's not just two, you can take many, many, many different worldviews and you can find incredibly intelligent people who are thoughtful, who are well thought out, who believe that worldview. And just that fact, that realization, makes a lot of Christians almost paralyzed, and even non-Christians for that matter, and they think, well, if there's smart people who can believe so many different things, how can we know anything? And there's another way we can react to this, and that's kind of the spirit of the age of our culture today, which is, well, the fact that so many different smart people believe different things means everybody must just be right, right? So they just must, they just must all be right. I mean, how can you know, how can I believe what I believe when really smart people who are smarter than me believe differently than I believe, and some people believe that, and some people that, some people believe what I do. So maybe just everyone uh, is right, okay? And, uh, and so now, one of the things we should just take into consideration is the fact that, by the way, because, and I've heard this argument many times, that, you know, all religions lead to the same place, and they all, they all lead to God, they're just different paths there, and all this sort of stuff. And often people who believe that have you know, some pretty good analogies that there are a lot of situations where multiple people can be right at the same time. And sometimes their analogies seem really convincing. For example, because there, there are issues on which everybody can be right at the same time, right? So for example, if we divide up the world into those who believe olives are good and those who believe olives are hideous except on pizza, uh, you have smart people on both sides of that equation, right? In the olives are good category, you have a few smart people. In the olives that are hideous except on pizza, you have lots of smart people, okay? In the olives are good, you have some nice people. In the olives are hideous, you have many nice people, okay? But you have good people on both sides, right? By the way, how many of you here think olives are good? Wow. You're a weird bunch. A whole bunch of you fit into the few part. <laughs> That's interesting. But anyway, um, but, I mean, this is obviously one of those, I mean, this is an example, right? There are certain things that are just subjective. There isn't a right or wrong to this. It's all about, there are different ways to truth in a subjective claim like this, right? But then on the other hand, there's different kinds of claims. We would call them objective claims, which have to be either right or wrong. They're not matters of opinion, right? Subjective claims can be matters of opinion. Objective ones can't be matters of opinion. So, for example, the statement... I, personally, Chris, have four children is not a subjective claim. That's an objective claim. It's either true or it's false. So people can have different opinions about whether or not I have four children, but there's only one opinion that's right, right? Like someone could say, no, he doesn't have four children. He has three children or he has ten children or whatever. They can have that opinion, but it's not that everybody can be right. You're either right or you're wrong, right? Or you know, who am I? I'm Chris Dirksen. What's my position here at the church? I'm the lead pastor. Well, that's either true or it's false. 
And you can have different opinions about it, but you're either going to be right or you're going to be wrong. If you think, no, no, he's a police officer, or no, no, he's in properties and he fixes things at church, you would be wrong, okay? So it's right or it's wrong. There's not multiple. So there's subjective opinion-like questions. There's objective truth claim questions. Now, if we go back to the Christian, non-Christian division of the world, and we just frame it with a little bit different wording, if we look at it as, you know, Jesus is God versus Jesus is not God. If we just kind of boil it down to two groups, you've got one group of people who believe Jesus is God. That's either true or it's false. And you've got another group of people who believe Jesus is not God. You can't both be right. These are mutually exclusive claims about who Jesus is. So if there is no God, then Jesus isn't God. So one is right and one is wrong. It just has to be. Now, I actually find this tremendously freeing because it doesn't matter which group you're in, you have this same problem. If I'm in the group of Jesus is not God, I can look over at the group that says Jesus is God, and it's a huge group. There's about two billion people in the world today who would tell you that Jesus is God. And there's about four to five billion people in the world today who would tell you that Jesus is not God. And on both sides, you have some incredibly smart people. If I'm in the Jesus is not God camp, I can look over at the Jesus is God camp and I can find some incredibly intelligent apologists and philosophers and writers and thinkers who believe Jesus is God. And so if I'm in the Jesus is not God camp, I look over there and I go, oh my goodness, how can so many smart people be wrong? And if I'm in the Jesus is God camp, I can look over at the Jesus is not God camp and I can see lots of smart people and scientists and thinkers and philosophers and writers who don't believe Jesus is God, and I can think to myself, how can so many smart people be wrong? But I, like I said, I actually find this tremendously freeing because it means that everybody on earth has the same problem. Somewhere along the, as, you know, when history comes to its conclusion, we're going to find out one of these groups is wrong. No matter what we do, there is going to be a really big group of people who are smarter than us who are going to be wrong. And I just find that freeing because you can't escape it. So I'm free then to decide for myself, let me look at things and see what I believe and why. And so based on that, because nobody, whether you're an atheist or whether you're non-Christian, this is not just a problem for Christians, it's a problem for anyone because there's lots of smart Christians too who believe that Jesus is God. So we can do, then we're just free to decide for ourselves, we're going to end up disagreeing with some smart people somewhere, and that's okay. So when I think about my faith, and when I have moments in my life, as we all do at times, where I think to myself, is this really all true? Yes, even I get that from time to time. Is this really all true? Like, is what we believe, does it actually, is it true? Jesus is real. There's a, there is eternal life. There is a God out there. When I think those thoughts... It's not complicated for me. There's not a hundred questions I have to answer. There's only two. And the first one I always start with that I always remind myself is this one. The number one question is, is there a God or isn't there? That's what I start with. I don't start with, is the Bible true or isn't it? Because that one can get complicated. I just think to myself, is there a God or isn't there? Because the thing I love about this question, it is so simple because there is only two answers there's no in-between. 
There's no partial answer. There's no third option. There's no fourth option. There's no, well, there's kind of partially a God and partially not. There either is a God or there isn't. And you say, well, how do you even begin to answer that question? For me, again, it's very easy. I don't need to read a ton of textbooks. I don't need to memorize a bunch of verses. Although memorization is very important, I'm just saying for this particular question, I just look around at the universe around us, and I go, how did this all get here? And I personally do not have enough faith to believe that this universe that we see around us could have just popped into existence out of nothing. You know, if I look in my backyard in summertime and one of my children's bikes is in the backyard, it does not even cross my mind to believe or think for a moment that that bike just popped into existence in the backyard. Even though my kids will try to convince me of that, right? I don't know if any of you parents have this problem at your home that nobody does so much stuff. This person, nobody. Who did this? Who put this here? Nobody, nobody. Wow. It's nobody. is just incredible what they all accomplish. But if my, my children could give me all kinds of very complex reasons and physics, how that bike just appeared there without anybody putting it there, and it doesn't matter how many reasons they give me, even though I don't have video, I can't see who put it there, I know that somebody put it there because that's just how the universe works, okay? And I'm actually going to put up a video. I showed this video a couple years ago in a service before, but I want to show it again. There's lots of young people I want to make see it. And certain things I just want us to have ingrained in our heads, but there's a very good little video that talks about this exact issue. So, Al, if you could get that ready and up and running. Um, it's, uh, it's put by William Lane Craig. It's about four minutes long. It's uh, from YouTube, and it just talks about this issue of how did the universe get here. And I think it's just really well done. Okay, crank it up, guys.
So really what it comes down to is you have two options and both of them are going to require faith. And one of the things in our culture that people are often confused about, they accuse Christians that, you know, you'll hear people say, well, I just don't have enough faith to be a Christian. But what they don't realize is faith, everybody, doesn't matter what your worldview is or even if you're an atheist, you actually need to have faith. Why? Because what is faith? Faith is having to believe something that you can't see. So yes, as Christians, we're going to require some faith because I can't physically show you God. I can't say, there he is, let me show him to you, let's go touch him, there, that's God, now you don't need any faith. We're going to need faith because I can't physically show him to you. But did you know that atheists need faith as well? Because they can't show us a video of how a universe so complex as ours is can just pop into existence out of nothing. They can never show us that. And so they need faith, and we need faith. It's not just Christians who need faith. You can't escape the fact that whatever worldview you choose, you are going to need faith. So the question is, how much faith you're going to need? And for me, when I look at this question, the universe was created by someone, or the universe just sprang into existence out of nothing, I don't have enough faith for option number two. I just don't have enough faith for it. And that's why people can throw all kinds of questions at the Bible, and sure, there's stories in there that even I don't understand, and questions about this and that, and there are questions that I can search, and yes, I love it when people ask good questions, and I want to answer those questions, but at the same time, my faith isn't shaken by any of them, because when I look at all that exists, I am convinced that something can't come into existence out of nothing, and therefore, I believe in God, which puts me actually in the camp of the vast majority of human beings that live today and the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived, okay? Because the vast majority of humans today agree with me that when they look around at the world around us, that there must be a God. By the way, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, used this argument, uh, Romans 1, Al, will go there right away. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, I find that passage to be very interesting because Paul is saying that 
everybody in the world. God has somehow shown himself to the entire world. Now, how has God shown himself to the world? Many Christians might answer the Bible, but that can't be it because most, the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived have never, ha- never had a chance in their lifetime. If we go through past history until now, never had a chance to ever look at one of these. And there are still millions of people on the earth today who have never been able to look at one of these. So when Paul says that God has shown the entire world about himself, he can't mean the Bible, even though the Bible is a super important part of God's revelation, obviously. So how has God shown himself to the entire world? Well, Paul says it in the next passage, in the next verse. He says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God says, I have shown myself to every human being who ever lived by the fact that things exist. And like I said, the vast majority of human beings have caught on to this. The vast majority of human beings on the earth today and who have ever lived all agree that someone must or some ones must have made this. Al, if you want to go to the next one there, you'll see that the only people who do not believe or who believe that the universe could pop into existence out of nothing are atheists or also some people who call themselves agnostics, which are just people who say we can't know. So for all intents and purposes, practically, they're basically atheists. But you have atheists, which is actually a very small group of people on the earth today. And then you have all, everyone else in the world. You've got Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Jews and indigenous religions and on and on and on. You have literally billions of people who agree with that intuition that we look out at the universe and we think to ourselves, someone or someone's put this here. And so when my nine-year-old daughter asks me, you know, how, how do you know? Like, why do we believe what we believe? I start with, if a bike, if you saw a bike in her backyard, would you think that someone put it there? Would you think it popped into existence? Okay? And then the second question now, however, is because that doesn't tell us that Jesus is that God. Now we're in this left column. We've ruled out the second column, you know, and so we look in the left column and we say, well, If the first big question is, is there a God or isn't there, then the second big question that goes along with it has to be, well, which God or gods is it? Which God or gods is it? And that's where I always encourage people, and I encourage our young people, like I said, I say, I'm not afraid of any question. I think questions are great, and I encourage young people, if you want to study, if you want to read what other religions have to say, I'm not afraid of that. Go and read them. Because I have become utterly convinced that Jesus is utterly unique and that he actually stands out among all the religions. Once you realize that there must be a God out there who put this all into existence, and you begin to look then at what are my options, Jesus absolutely stands out among all of the other faiths. And one thing, I'll just take a moment, I'll just just really breeze through this. It's important to remember, first of all, and then we'll look at Jesus's uniqueness. It's important, first of all, to realize one of the things that sets Jesus apart from many of the religions, which are very mythological, is that he was actually a real person in history, okay? Many of the religions, not all of them, there are other historically-based religions like Islam and even Buddhism, Judaism, where they're actually based on real people who lived. But if you look at many of the world religions, a huge number of the world religions, they're actually based on stories about people and gods and things like that that never actually lived in history. And that's the first thing that sets Jesus out is he actually lived and walked on the earth. Now, that doesn't make him God, 
but it does mean we have something there to go off of. Okay, he was a real person that lived in history. How else does a religion start out of nothing? You know, in the first century AD, and suddenly thousands of people are calling themselves Christians and saying they are following this man, Jesus. How does that happen unless he wasn't a real person? By the way, nobody questions whether Muhammad was a real person in Islam. And again, the answer is, how did a bunch of Muslims suddenly come to be unless there was a real person named Muhammad? And there's so much historical evidence, and there's so many writings that attest to Jesus. Let me just read you two quick quotes. I've looked at some of these before, but I'll just put it up there, and there's so much deeper you could go. Josephus was an early Jewish historian who was born just a few years after Jesus' uh, crucifixion. He was not a Christian man, but he refers to Jesus in his writings. He, talks, uh, he's, he tells about uh, James, a Jewish man who was the brother of Jesus, being executed. And, uh, and then he talks about how this James is the brother of Jesus who is called Christ. So he acknowledges that there was a man named Jesus who was called the Messiah. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't believe in him, but it just, it, it just shows Jesus was a real man. He was a real person. Okay, Christianity isn't based on just mythological things. It's actually based on real history. Tacitus was a Roman historian who hated Christians, as you'll see in this quote. And he writes this. He also lived in the first century A.D., and he writes this, he writes, Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians hated for their abominable crimes. So you can see that he is not a Christian. He's not favorable to Christianity. Then he says this, Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So he confirms that Jesus was a real person who was executed under Pilate. Okay, so Jesus was a real historical person. But now let's just briefly look at how this real historical person stands out unique from other historical figures who founded major religious movements. Because again, there's this idea that, well, they must just all be right. All religions just lead to the same place. All religions just are different ways to God. Well, let's look at some of the religious teachings and the claims. Buddha, for example, who has a huge following even today. Buddha, and people say, you know, well, Buddha is just another way to God. Do you know that Buddha doesn't even really talk about God? If you actually read, and this is where I, I use the word ignorant, but not as an insult. Some people take the word ignorant as an insult. But people in our culture who, uh, you know, they talk about all the religions just teach, you know, lead to the same path, and they all just basically teach the same thing. That's ignorant, not in an insulting way. It just, ignorant just means they don't know. You actually haven't looked at what they teach. See, Buddha didn't really talk about God at all. He didn't claim to be God. He didn't claim to be a prophet for God. If you basically boil down all of Buddha's writings, Buddha's writings aren't about God. They're, about, they're advice. It's advice for how to find enlightenment in life and how to lessen your suffering. And by the way, if you want to boil down Buddha's advice, you know, from lots and lots and lots and lots of different writings, just to kind of oversimplify things a bit, but if you want to just get the gist of what Buddha wrote was, the reason you suffer is because you love. So if you want to suffer less, you need to love less. Does that sound like good advice? Like the reason you're in so much pain because you lost a loved one is because you love them so much. Does that sound the same as Jesus' you know, main commandment, which is love God and love people? These are not leading to the same place. These are totally different things. And Buddha's not claiming to be God. He's not... He's not claiming to be any of those things. He's just saying, here's advice for how to find enlightenment. And by the way, he, left his, he lived his teaching. He left and abandoned his wife and child so that he could go on this search for enlightenment. 
How about Muhammad? Muhammad claimed to be a prophet of God, of course, and then Jesus actually claimed to be God. Okay, those are radically different things. A person in history who actually claimed to be God in the flesh. What about their teachings? Okay, we talked about Buddha a little bit, but let's just compare Muhammad and Jesus. Okay, and there's so many things we could look at. Muhammad specifically teaches in the Quran that God is not a father. What does Jesus teach us? God is a father. By the way, that's revolutionary, and I'm going to show you that in just a couple minutes. Muhammad teaches us that our primary duty is to submit to God. And by the way, as Christians, we agree with that. We should submit and obey God. But what was Jesus' number one command? Not submit. Love. Our primary duty is to love God. And Jesus uses terms like family terms and terms of friendship when talking about his followers. That is a revolutionary way to think about God. It's revolutionary. You, you won't find that in the other religions. Muhammad taught salvation by works, which, humanly speaking, that's, that's a natural way to think of things. But he taught, th- he, he taught that, you know, in the end, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad. Thank God. Jesus taught us that salvation is by forgiveness. Because who can pile up enough good works for God? Muhammad directly teaches in the Quran that Jesus is not God. He actually names Jesus and says he is not God, and he did not die on the cross. About three times, Jesus said, I am God. Muhammad taught, subdue and conquer those who do not believe. Jesus taught the opposite, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Are these different paths leading to the same point, or are these different paths that lead to radically different points? These are radically different claims. These are radically different teachings. I want to show you, and by the way, we could go on and on about the resurrection. I'm not going to touch that today. But let me just show you a couple of passages where we look at Jesus' teaching. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Do you know that Christianity is the only belief system that can give this worldview to the world? An atheist cannot An atheist looks at the universe and first of all has to have a ton of faith that the universe popped into existence out of nothing. And then all they can tell you out of that that the universe is a cold, pitiless, blind, and purposeless place. Because all it is is luck. It's blind chance that brought us here. All we are is a pile of molecules and atoms. And you can wrestle with that and that doesn't make all atheists bad people. There's lots of nice people and smart people who are atheists. But their worldview doesn't give us a universe that is governed by love or goodness. Muhammad doesn't give us a picture of God that is love and goodness either, even though you will find, there's no question in the, in the Quran, you will find passages about God being merciful, but overall, it's a much more difficult, hard picture of God, a God who demands rather than a God who loves. For God so loved the world, now look at this, that he gave. In most, in most religious systems, the gods demand. With Jesus, God gives. It's beautiful. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then we see Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. By the way, how many religious systems have 
very prescribed times of the day. You must pray this many times a day. You must pray in this way. That's common in many religions. Jesus actually teaches the opposite. I don't want a system where everybody has to do it the same way, the same time, all the time. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. Do not be like them for what? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, it is revolutionary to think of God, the one who made the universe, that there is someone out there who made everything that is, and he thinks of himself as a father. He has a father's heart. You know, day before yesterday, Friday night, I took my uh, daughter Eden out on a date. Father's heart, right? I didn't take her out because I had to. I didn't take her out because she made me. I didn't take her out because Eden said to me, you know, Dad, we've got to have this discipline of doing things together. She didn't pursue me. I pursued her. She did not pay for the meal or the movie. Okay? Absolutely not. I would have been insulted. Right? I took her out. That's the Father's heart. For God so loved the world so much that he gave. I took her out. And while we were at that meal together, we did not talk about you know, all kinds of serious, heavy things that I wanted to make sure that she would have on her heart to be a good daughter. I did not tell her all the things she was doing wrong. I took her out because I delight in her. That's what a father's heart is toward their children, is it not? It's not have to. It's not making you do stuff. It's not loading burdens on you. I didn't talk to her about all the things she needed to do in order to be a good daughter. I talked about to her the whole time about things that she loves because I love her. Who are your friends? Do you have any crushes? I won't go any further than that because I can talk to my kids about that. Do you, what I, you know, she loves to write stories. What are you writing about? How many chapters are in that story? When do I get to read it? 14? Oh my goodness. I just delight in her. That's a father's heart. I took her to a movie after, Call of the Wild. She spent half the movie with her head on my shoulder. I was in heaven. That's a father's heart. Jesus said, pray then like this, our father in heaven. The God who made the universe out of nothing is a father to you. When I talk to my daughter about why do I believe in Jesus, it's easy. I don't have enough faith to not believe there's a God. And when I have to pick which God it is, and there's other reasons, we can look at proofs of the resurrection and all that stuff, but when I want to look at the other, which God is it, there's only one God that meets that deep desire in my heart to be loved. And that's Jesus. There's only one God that makes sense of the love I feel for my children. How can I have that kind of love for my children if there isn't a God out there somewhere who made me to be like that? But I wonder how many of us have not experienced the Father's love recently. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And I want to just ask that the Father would open up your hearts, that you would experience his love in fresh ways again. Lord Jesus, open up our hearts 
to experience the Father's love afresh. You are real. There's no doubt about that. And you love us. Help us to feel again your appreciation and enjoyment of us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.